Hello and welcome back to the Asset Allocator podcast, where we try to take a look under the bonnet of the market with leading asset allocators. I'm David Thorpe, Contributing Editor to Asset Allocator. Joining me today is Chris Metcalf, Chief Investment Officer at IBOS in Harrogate. Thank you for joining me today. Good morning. Thank you for inviting me. Chris, the latest Investment Association data shows that UK clients are allocating to US equity funds substantially again, even as they sold off most of the rest of the equity sectors and indeed fixed income sectors in March. At the start of the year, US equities were perhaps a little bit more out of favour, particularly in the tech-focused areas. What could we now be at a point where whatever bad news is around for tech stocks, whether that be tighter monetary policy or regulatory uncertainty, is priced in and it could be time to revisit both the US and the NASDAQ in particular. I think the, the bottom line here is that the US is still expensive relative to, to its peers and relative to its own history. So for us, it's moved from eye-wateringly expensive to just very expensive. I don't think there's been any real major change. There's been a, a, you know, there's been a sell-off, especially in the growth in tech stuff, which all really started with with Powell and his retiring the word transitory, which seems sort of kickstart people sort of reevaluating some of those some of those growth stocks. But I think the the one of the phenomenon that's been going on for the last few years is the the U.S. retail client um, and the and the buy buy the dip investment strategy, which has worked incredibly well so many times. And I think until we get a, a fall in, in the U.S. market in particular, where buying the dip doesn't work quick enough to reassure people that it's worked yet again. I don't think anything's fundamentally changed. Another area where buying the dip perhaps has been extremely effective for for many years is in the fixed income universe. Mm -hmm. And it's strange because while most asset classes are pricing in very high inflation right now, no one seems to have told the bond market. Yields have certainly risen, but they remain negative in real terms and actually very low by historical standards. But how do you at IBOS think about fixed income allocations right now? With a good deal of trepidation. It's one of the most common questions we're getting from advisors at the moment is uh, is our, our approach to, to fixed income. And actually, we make most of our changes through our, our MPS on a, on a quarterly basis. But we do sometimes make intra-quarter changes. And we've, we've just gone through one of those uh, rather rare intra-quarter changes. And that's really... Um, that's been down to the, the fixed income position and the outlook um, for fixed income. So we'd already gone very short duration by our own standards and, and by the by the peer group. And what we've now done is even within our most defensive portfolios, we've taken away all explicit um, sovereign bond holdings. We've shortened duration again. We remain overweight cash, which is a position we, we do get questioned about. You know, clients quite rightly want to know why they're why they're paying for, for you know for money market funds, but. We've got to be realistic and look at the the relative valuations and the relative attractiveness of the of all the asset classes. Uh, and I think at, at the moment you you could still say, and we do think that both equities and fixed income are are, are still expensive. And although you know yields have been rising, um, they have been falling for an awful long time. And maybe a bit like the like we would say about the U.S. equities, I, I don't think there's. Um, I don't think they look attractive at this level. At some point, you know, the sovereign bonds will start to look attractive again. And I do think they can play a part in the portfolio as 
um, as in, you know, insurance, they can help you on the really bad days of, of equities. You tend to get a bounce. Uh, but I think it was telling when the the very limited bounce we got in uh, sorry sorry fall in treasury yields when Putin started his invasion. Now I think in, in normal circumstances, if, if bonds were more sort of neutrally priced or perceived to be more neutrally priced, you would have seen yields really come in, um, and and that to me was a was another warning sign of wow, you know even the the, the a war that started and the threat of you know a nuclear a nuclear war and yields have still not come in much that's that was was extremely and, and the the uh cash allocation that you've got at the moment is that taken from what would be fixed interest or is it taken from what would be the equity bucket uh it's, it's taken from from both because we've just seen a, a lack of a lack of attractiveness um really the areas we do find it attractive we're still fully allocated to but the areas we haven't found um, attractive, like the, a large part of U.S. equities, though we have got um, holdings in U.S. value. So then because the, you know, the U.S. obviously makes a huge percentage of, of, of global allocations now, um, the fact that we are, are, are bearish on the U.S. Um, relatively and in absolute terms as well um, means that those, those cash holdings are, have, have basically stayed elevated for, for quite a while. And, and while they've been elevated, in, in the round, these assets have just generally become ever more expensive. You mentioned at the at the top of your remarks that um, fixed income allocations is one of the things that you're most frequently asked about, mm -hmm. and that certainly reflects our experience here at Asset Allocator. The other thing that I know provokes a lot of discussion among our uh, readers is absolute return funds, which can be seen as, I suppose, an alternative to to fixed income or certainly something to offset any volatility from equity allocations mm -hmm. but the absolute return sector has has i think it's fair to say struggled in performance terms in in recent years and outflows have been very considerable uh, i think the the gars product has lost something like 95 percent of its its aum in five years or something but yeah how do you see them do, do you see them as having a role or or a purpose in in portfolios at all I think it's what's changed for us. So we used to have an allocation to to absolute return up until two or three years ago, when you could still get, um, let, let's say, when the last time the the US ten year was roughly at three, yielding three. So there was still some for us some upside in, in holding fixed income. So we didn't feel compelled to to use absolute return. So we had we had used them as I say in the past with 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 some success, with some uh, you know some periods we. We'd rather wish we hadn't. It's always hard with the absolute returns to to have any sort of peer group comparison, because regardless of the of the remit of, of the, the the fund or or whatever they're benchmarking to, um, the way it actually plays out is can be very different between the different funds. So, and there's I think there's extra risk because of the complications of a lot of these strategies. Um, and we're all familiar, like with the with the gas situation. Mm -hmm. um, so. For a while, we stayed away because we didn't feel we needed to be there. I can understand why a lot of um, clients have moved away, a lot of retail clients moved back out of, of things like GARS because, to be honest, you just needed to be long equity, pretty much. So, so why bother dampening down those those great returns with with absolute return? I think the world we're in now, um, and we brought back in the uh, JPM Global Macro Ops Fund in uh, February, and this is really this this 
that sort of plays to the to our, our view on fixed income that there is very little value in, in relative terms to, to fixed income. So we felt compelled to go back and revisit the absolute return sector. We'd held uh, JPM before, so we were familiar with familiar with the fund and, and the management team. And we have now had um, several meetings with Ruffer and their diversified return fund, which is their, their daily uh, dealing version of, um, of that strategy. And that fund is also coming into the to the portfolio. So we are... Um, um, well, why, why, those, why those two, I guess? I mean, the first thing I, I noticed, and I'm not hugely familiar with those funds, is certainly both of them uh, have a very macro uh, view of the world, which not, you know, some absolute return funds are, are more algorithmic or mathematical, unless inflation is going to do this tomorrow. But those guys are very much more in the second of those camps. Yes, and I think that was really what, um, certainly with the, the rougher guys, that's, that, we found that quite reassuring. What's always interesting and relatively rare is to be able to speak to managers who can be completely objective because you know they can be long, they can be short, they can be across asset classes. So when a manager speaks about how they're seeing the various asset classes um, with that degree of objectivity and they're paid by results like, like the rest of us, I think that has an extra value as opposed to, say, talking to a bond manager about just bonds or you know, a, a long-only equity manager. Uh, I've never met a, a long-only equity manager who's ever said, "Cranky, this is a shocking time for my my asset class. You, you need to run to the hills." Um, <laughs> it, it just doesn't happen. Whereas if you speak to a to somebody in the absolute return space, um, you, you do get that degree of objectivity because they, you know, they that, that's how they can, um, you know, they, they've got the freedom to to talk like mm -hmm. that. It's a bit like the um, I think with the ex ex Fed governors. Um, I, I was listening to an interview. Um, this this week, when there was people talking about Bill Dudley and how come he could come out with such sort of profound statements now about the situation in, in in the US and where they are with interest rates and why they're so far behind the curve and why people don't do it when they're actually at the Fed, and he said, "Well, you don't really want to be saying to people we're going to create strategies and and policy that's going to you know create unemployment, um, but once you leave, you can do that." So it's always interesting when you can get people who are being objective about any of these areas, whether it's you know macro or or, or central bank policy. So we've been impressed with the, the rougher team. Obviously, we've, we've seen the track record. And when we've looked at the last four drawdowns, because we're very conscious of, of, of the sort of client journey, I think it's probably our advising background originally that, that, that takes us there. When we've looked at the, the last four drawdowns, we've seen between the, the rougher fund and the uh, JPM fund, uh, quite, quite complementary outcomes. So they haven't both done the same thing in the same situation, which which is what we're looking for. So you know those last four, the the outcome, the, the drawdowns we look we look at are the uh, what's happened in the post transitory period since Powell retired the word transitory, which is mm -hmm. brought about a period in itself. COVID nineteen, uh, also Powell's infamous pivot in Q four of eighteen, and then the, the China devaluation back in, in sort of fifteen, because these are these funds, you know they are replacing. Um, they are bringing down the beta, especially in the equity part, and they are replacing some of the bond allocation. So, you know, we need to know what they're going to do on a on a rainy day. That leads nicely, I guess, to the to the next area, which is uh, alternatives. I mean, one can, of course, think of absolute return funds as part of the alternatives allocation, or or not. But but there are many other alternatives, and everyone to whom we speak probably has a different definition or view on what can go into the alternatives bucket. It can be commodities. It can be gold 
can mm -hmm. be property even. Um, but how do you think about alternatives right now? Presumably rougher have, have gold, so you, you've got some of that there, but, but how do you think about it more broadly? Yeah, I think we, we sort of class property and infrastructure loosely into, into this bucket. So we've, got, we've had an allocation to um, property by the, the, the LNG tracker, global tracker, um, just to give us that, that global coverage, which is inevitably a very large percentage in the US because it's global. Um, and then we've got two infrastructure funds, that, again, the LNG tracker, which gives us that same sort of allocation. And then the Lazard um, infrastructure fund, which gives us a very different, different geographical makeup. And those three funds together have worked very well for us. We've held them for, for, for quite a while. And actually, we have just increased the, the LNG property fund in our lower risk portfolios, again, away from, from bonds. I think of all the areas where we've been surprised by the robustness of the, of the performance, it has been that property infrastructure, um, especially as yields, you know, bond yields have started to rise. But that, while that isn't particularly supportive of, of, of property, you know, we've got the inflation and this hunt for, for, for real assets, which is seems to be gathering pace, and that seems to be offsetting the yield differential. So I think as well that because you've got government support, um, which, which tends to be cross-party support as well, and it's very rare to find anything like that, um, either if, say, in the UK or, or in, the, in the US or whatever, because I think most people accept that there's a, a real need for, for more infrastructure spending. So it's one of those areas where you, you have got your government support and and even if you get changes of government around the around the world i think that's that support is generally going to be there so we still like infrastructure and property despite the and i think the reason we've been so surprised is these you know, very obvious headwinds of retail commercial retail was already um, structurally flawed if not doomed uh, and then of course with the pandemic and the working from home we've had the uh, sort of similar situation with office space and people trying to work out exactly how much office space they need and, and that is another area that, that is is under pressure structurally challenged and I, I think that I don't think that's finished yet I, I still speak to companies and and they're still trying to work out how much office space they need um, I'm not sure we're, we're sort of really through the pandemic from a uh, a post-pandemic thinking of, of of how that's going to work so you've got two big areas there which are under pressure but I think they over the, the, the general need for for, for real assets and, and the inflationary backdrop sort of trumps it with regards to gold we've we've had a gold uh the, the 91 gold mining fund for for several years uh, again we hold it across uh from from our lowest risk portfolios through to our highest risk it's been a very good diversifier for us um it's had some phenomenal returns at various periods and some incredible drawdowns aren't that others but in a in a, in a world where it's harder and harder to get diversifying assets that the, the gold mining fund has, has certainly helped uh, we brought in about 12 months ago, I think the, the JPM Natural Resources Fund, which was doing reasonably well for us um, until this sort of the, the back end of last year. And, and since then, obviously, it's been doing incredibly well, as anything in that space has. So we have got a reasonable allocation to, you know, when you look at it, property to, to gold miners, you know, to infrastructure. And I think we're also finding that a lot of the areas that were attracting a lot of, of interest um, around the, the ESG agenda, there's a lot of that being revisited, um, especially in the energy space. Yeah, I think that's that's going to throw up new winners and, and losers as well. And uh, like everybody else, we're still trying to grapple with the timelines for the, for these things um, uh, amidst you know, considerable uncertainty. So we're, we're quite big on the alternative space, I suppose. Thank you, Chris. That's great. And thank you for joining me today on the Asset Allocator podcast. 
And thank you all for listening. Please do tune in for the next edition of the podcast in a couple of weeks. Thank you. Thank you very much, David. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.